0: Namaste everyone let us invoke the divine mother first
1: tatsavitur oh. Varam
0: Welcome everyone to the 6th chapter of Bechariki. ki. is an initiative for thoughts, dialogues and discussions. It is conducted by Rashtram School of Public Leadership, Precihul University. And this is a part of 150th birth anniversary year of Sri Aurobindo. This 6th chapter is really special because we are conducting it in the sacred month of the birthday of the Mother of the Sri Aurobindo Ashram. And today's topic is the Divine Mother, All Is See. To give a brief context, Sri Aurobindo has said, "In all that is done in the universe, the Divine through His Sakti is behind all action." Sri Aurobindo describes the all-encompassing and the transcendental reality as the Divine Mother. The principle behind the workings is feminine in character. In Yoga also it is the divine who is the sadhaka and the sadhana. This sixth chapter of Vechariki, which will try to contemporize and contextualize the teachings of Sri Aurobindo, as has been done in the past episodes as well, will focus on the feminine aspect as expounded by Sri Aurobindo and the mother. This will declutter our minds from the needless divisions and dualities due to politics of our time. I would now like to welcome Dr. Sampadananda Misra, professor at Rashtram School of Public Leadership, Received University, to give his opening remarks. So, Dr. Sampadananda Misra is a scholar in Sanskrit and a lifelong devotee of Sri Aurobindo and the mother. Welcome, sir. Thanks, to of you.
1: I welcome you to this chapter of Vaichariki, uh, which was started a few months before. The whole idea of Vaichariki is to take off a particular concept, a particular idea, and then have a keynote speech on that particular aspect of Sri Aurobindo or the mother or integral yoga or their philosophy, and then to have a panel discussion to contemporize it. To contextualize it, and this time, since February is the birth anniversary month of the mother, so we take up the topic divine mother and look at how the shakti is at the center of everything, the center of creation. Sri Aurobindo has explained it to us. Who mother? Is. He explains, he has explained thoroughly in various contexts and especially in the book The Mother and many other letters that he had written to the sadhats that the mother is Aditi, the undivided consciousness, she is the Paratpara, she is the shakti who has manifest here, who has taken the human birth with all her power to bring a new creation. And she has always worked for this new creation to make it possible on this earth, the divine life that Sri Aurobindo envisioned, that Sri Aurobindo worked for. So this is the reason that why The mother herself had mentioned that without him I exist not, and without me he is unmanifest. Mm -hmm. So, Sri Aurobindo and the mother, when we talk about the mother, when we talk about Sri Aurobindo, it is the same consciousness. And in the Divine Mother, she carries, she herself carries in herself all the necessary powers which are needed for this new creation, which is waiting to. And she herself said that this new creation has already started and we are fortunate enough to be a part of this new creation. Although it will take much more time to realize what this new creation is about for the entire humanity. All that we see is destruction around But this destruction is also necessary for destroying the past and recreating out of it the new creation. So we bow down before the Divine Mother because she is the grace in the human form. She is the beauty in the human form. She is the harmony in the human form. She is all the strength in the human form and in her human form we see all these bounties of the spiritual realm so with these few words i welcome you all again and then for the keynote we have professor Amish vizalaniji who is a long time devotee of sri aurobindo and the mother and is in the delhi branch of ashram so i welcome you sir and then for the panelist panel discussion we have mohit and we have Gitanjali to take it forward. So, let's listen to Professor Pramesh ji on the Divine Mother, All is She.
2: Thank you. Thank you ji for uh, introducing the subject. My dear brothers and sisters, I am uh, expected to give the keynote address. In fact, uh, I neither have the keys to open any doors of consciousness, nor anything to say that is worth taking notes about. However, now that I am in that unenviable situation, I hope I will be able to say something that might uh, make your uh, presence here spending time with me uh, worthwhile. When it comes to keys, the line that comes to my mind is uh, that from Savitri, our life is a paradox with god for key. that in fact is the key that uh, will take us from where we are towards the perfection that is the goal of yoga that is the goal of life and that perfection on a large scale is the vision of shiragundu and the mother which will change the very character of uh, the world by changing human nature a life is a paradox it's a paradox because uh, We are potentially divine. We are in essence the divine. That is our lasting reality. And yet, because of the ignorance with which we are born and the ignorance which we are attached to, we uh, manifest very little of that divinity. And uh, as a result, human nature is uh, far from divine, only a bit better and sometimes worse than uh, the nature of animals. So that is... uh, what makes the journey towards the perfection uh, symbolized by the divine, a long journey that goes on from life to life, one life not being generally enough. So that is the paradox, what a human being is and could be and should be on one hand and uh, what the human being actually behaves like in practice so that is the paradox and the key to that paradox is god that is uh, approaching the divine getting in touch with the divine the divine that is always within us and all around us and yet plays that game of hide and seek it hides and uh, leaves us to seek him so that is the game of uh, life which has been designed for all of us it's interesting to the divine and uh, we also being in a sense of the divine, it can be enjoyable to us also. So that's why Sri Aurobindo has called us Putra, and uh, exhorts us to manifest that Ananda Prakashatam, manifest that Ananda which you really are. So life need not be dull and boring and uh, uncomfortable because of uh, this paradox. This journey can be an enjoyable journey and one can enjoy it with the Divine whose game it is. Uh, what we are going to do today is to try and uh, understand the Mother, the Divine Mother, who is All. All is She. Uh, we have been told by Sri Aurobindo and uh, Nanji has just emphasized that and uh, quoted from uh, Sri Aurobindo and said that he has said it not only in the small booklet, The Mother, but also in several letters that he has written. But what we are essentially trying to do is to understand something spiritual, understand the divine itself in human form on earth at the mental level. And uh, one of the most important pieces of advice that the mother herself has given is that spiritual matters cannot be understood at the mental level. Now, this is a principle which uh, nobody has any resistance in accepting. But then it stops there. We accept it very easily, and then this is one of those pieces of advice that are violated most often. We still do try to understand spiritual matters in mental terms, and that is the violation that we are indulging in today also. And uh, that's why, uh, that's one reason why I feel very inadequate while doing it. But all the same, now that uh, that has become my swadharma being placed in that position today, I'll try to do that. When we talk of uh, the Divine Mother, the uh, shakti aspect of uh, the Mother, we inevitably think about the Feminine Principle. And uh, the Feminine Principle we have to talk about because there is another Masculine Principle. Otherwise, it would not be, we would not be talking in terms of uh, Masculine and Feminine. It's because there are two, Masculine and the Feminine, that we are talking about it and uh, first i'll start with something which uh, is rather mundane as a student of biology let's try and see why the uh, masculine and feminine principle evolved at all there are primitive creatures in which uh, this type of a sexual differentiation does not exist they also reproduce but then at some stage in evolution uh, this uh, dimorphism this uh, sexual differentiation appeared and uh, the to uh, the masculine and the feminine roles came to be identified. and uh, But then what was the purpose behind it? The purpose apparently was uh, to introduce innovation and creativity. Because you know, if you look at reproduction in creatures which do not have this differentiation between male and female, reproduction is like producing photocopies. Whereas it is with the advent of sexual differentiation that we get half of the knowledge coming from one source and half of the knowledge in the form of genes coming from another source, and the two put together lead to something which can be considered innovative and creative, and in in general, better than either of these two pieces of information coming together because the better genes are dominant. So we get improvement, and more than that, we get a lot of scope for creativity and innovation. But then within these, we find that the male by and large supplies only half the knowledge, knowledge in the form of genes. And then after that, it is left to the feminine principle where uh, not only the information coming from the feminine principle also unites with this masculine principle, but then the role of the female, role of the woman is not over. She is the one who, nurtures it in her womb. She is the one who nurtures it by and large after the child is uh, in the world. And uh, her role in uh, nurturing this in case of human beings for decades is uh, far more than the role of the male whose role is uh, rather peripheral in this whole process. So what the uh, woman is doing is, Firstly, converting this knowledge which came from two sources, from the masculine and the feminine, converting it into something uh, practical, which means she is giving this knowledge a practical shape. And uh, not only she is giving it a practical shape, she is making sure that uh, the shape that it finally acquires as a result of nurturing is the best possible with that type of information. So she is further trying to improve upon it. while nurturing it. And uh, this is a very important uh, aspect of the implementation of the knowledge that came from the two sources because uh, whether it is uh, in this case or whether it is in the world in general where ideas and knowledge have to be converted into practice or whether it is in spirituality where we may know a lot but then find it difficult when we put it into practice. Uh, moving from knowledge to practice is always a difficult and uh, long haul because uh, knowledge alone is not enough it has to be deepened and in this case it also has to be nurtured and uh, when we do that the original ideas and the knowledge with which we start also inevitably undergo some dilution because uh, knowledge uh, translated into practice involves a certain Minimum degree of dilution because we are now giving it a form, we are giving it a shape. So, how to minimize that dilution, inevitable dilution and be as faithful to the original and in this case, what the child's mother is doing is that also trying to improve upon the information that came, making the best out of it, reaching its maximum potential. And this is what the mother has talked about when she was advising the women in Japan about uh, what they could do that it was not only about bringing children into the world, they can consciously make sure that they bring into the world a child with a consciousness which is uh, higher than what has been the norm so far. So women have that opportunity to influence even the consciousness of the child while the child is growing in the mother's womb. So they can improve upon The consciousness and the mother said if that is possible in case of form because she cites a case of a woman who gave birth to a child resembling a child in a painting by rembrandt and uh, that's because the uh, child's mother had been looking at that painting throughout pregnancy and wishing that she had a child looking like that as beautiful as that so if uh, that can happen to matter which is far more uh, uh, resistant to this type of uh, uh, influence why it can't happen in case of consciousness which is far more plastic. So, the mother tells the the women in Japan that uh, they should aim at bringing the child with the highest possible level of consciousness. They are creating, they are participating in creating a new type of human beings, a new consciousness with a new consciousness and creating a better world. So that is what they are participating in. we see that there is a certain degree of continuity between the knowledge that we have on biological basis and we can extend it further. Now, since the woman is doing a difficult job, she is doing an essential job, she is doing something which is a long haul, she needs this type of an instinct, instinct to nurture, instinct to love and uh, since love also involves in a way, giving up many things, giving up one's own comforts, giving up one's own needs for the sake of the one whom one is nurturing. So that maternal instinct which happily and voluntarily gives up, for example, when the child is sick, a woman very gladly gives up uh, her sleep. She feels her need to sleep is less important, the child's need to be looked after at night is more important, so she gives up her sleep. So this spontaneous uh, tendency to give up something cheerfully and voluntarily, if the food is inadequate, the woman would much rather feed the child rather than eat herself. So this is the type of instinct that has also been put into the, the mothers and uh, they, this naturally is actually an expression of love. So an immense amount of love, unconditional love, love that goes out of the way and uh, gives up easily. Then it also needs because of the long haul endurance and strength and that also women have in plenty. Generally, they do far better than men. Even in biology, we are told that that although conventionally a woman has been called the weaker vessel, actually she is the stronger vessel. And supported by one clear sort of uh, piece of statistics, women on the whole have a longer life expectancy than men. They live longer. And uh, this uh, is not only at the end, but also at the beginning, the number of men who survive after birth are fewer and that's why the ratio is a bit skewed. At the time of birth, the number of boys is slightly more than that of women but by the end it is more women than men left because of the woman being the stronger vessel. So woman has all those qualities which are required for converting that knowledge which comes from both the masculine and the feminine source into practice and uh, giving it a practical shape and she also has the capacity to give it the best possible shape and all the equipment that she needs, the instinct of immense amount of unconditional love and uh, the endurance and the strength required for it, all that has been planted in the woman. Now, the mother, although she was in a feminine form, was actually not just an ordinary mother, she was the divine itself. And uh, because uh, we as human beings saw her in a, uh, female form in a feminine form had difficulty in sometimes always accepting it fully, and that is why Shorobindu and the mother, even the mother herself, have sometimes said it very clearly that uh, she was the divine in human form. And uh, Sampadaranji just said that the relationship between Shorobindu and the mother was complementary. Mother said that without Sri Aurobindo, she could not exist because the purpose for which she was here, for that the essential knowledge came from Sri Aurobindo, although she herself also had it, but uh, that knowledge had to come from Sri Aurobindo also. So without him, the, her purpose would not be fulfilled and so she could not exist. But at the same time, without her, Sri Aurobindo could not manifest. Because uh, she is the one who gave it a practical shape. Shorabindha himself said that if the mother had not come, all the books that he had written, all the philosophy that he had worked out, would have stayed in books. It was she who gave it a practical shape, and she gave it a practical shape in Shorabindha Ashram Pondicherry. The uh, Pondicherry Ashram was essentially her creation. Shorabindha went into seclusion in 1926 and uh, then left it to the mother to take care of the ashram. And when he left it to the mother, uh, there were hardly 25 people. It was under the care of the mother that the number grew from 25 to more than a thousand. And it was the mother who gave Shorobindo's philosophy and her philosophy, which were identical. In fact, it would be difficult to find two spiritual masters more alike than Shorobindo and the mother. But she gave that philosophy a practical shape in Shorobindo Ashram. And uh, for that, this feminine principle was essential. And uh, in fact, both of them were necessary because what the two bodies together did, one could not have done. And that's why one consciousness had to manifest in the form of these two bodies. And what better collaboration can be there between the two bodies, unless one is uh, masculine and the other is a feminine body. So that feminine Shakti has its importance, not only in the creation, but uh, also in nurturing that creation and providing the necessary amount of love and care. With that introduction, let me read out a few lines about the mother from Savitri. Very often those lines have been said actually about Savitri. But then uh, we all know that Ashwapati was in fact none other than Sri Aurobindo himself and uh, uh, Savitri was the mother. And once again we find that the same type of relationship. Ashwapati is the one who gets the boon from the Divine Mother. So once again the Mother comes in. And the Divine Mother finally grants the boon that one shall descend on earth who will fulfill Sri Aurobindo's uh, aspiration of a shift in the consciousness of the world. The world, because of its ignorance, is a place of misery and suffering. That should not always be so. That was uh, what uh, Ashwapati wanted. He didn't want just his own salvation, which uh, was the temptation offered by the Divine Mother. But then when he insists, then it is the Divine Mother who gives that boon and says that one shall descend. And who is that descent? Who is it one that descends? It's Savitri that descends. So once again, the feminine principle comes in that Shakti, that was the one which could give a practical shape to Ashwapati's vision. So to give a sh- practical shape to the vision, it's always that feminine Shakti that has been required. and. Uh, in Savitri, Sri Savitri, Ashwapati is uh, the same as Swarubindo and uh, Savitri the same as the mother. So when we read lines about Savitri in uh, Sarubindo Savitri, we can clearly see that it has been said about the mother. So just a few lines here and there, I'll pick up. Uh, in book one, Canto 1, Canto 2, Sri says uh, all in her pointed to a nobler kind. She was not uh, an ordinary person. Everything in her, all parts of her being, everything that she said and did, all in her pointed to a nobler kind. In another place, in the same canto, a little later he says, love in her was wider than the universe. The whole world could take refuge in her single heart, immense amount of love. Love that uh, could accommodate the whole world. The whole world could take refuge in her single heart. And uh, then in uh, book seven, Canto seven, he says, uh, she was a single being yet all things. The world was her spirit's wide circumference. The thoughts of others were her intimates. Their feelings close to her universal heart. Their bodies, her many bodies, kin to her she was no more herself but all the world. This brings about her essentially divine character. She was not an ordinary human being. She was the divine herself. And uh, these lines bring it out very clearly. She was a single being yet all things, to be one and many at the same time, simultaneously. That is the character of the divine. Having become the many, it has not ceased to be one. That one has become the many, the transcendent still continues to be there, in spite of and in addition to this uh, division and plurality within this plurality, then each bit also does not represent only one bit or one part of the divine; it represents the
3: whole
2: hmm? so each uh, individual in the creation is also Puna so. She was a single being, yet all things. The world was her spirit's wide circumference. The entire world was uh, her, uh, was sort of one. So, one could say that uh, since the spirit is all pervasive in the creation, the world was her spirit's wide circumference. The thoughts of others were her intimates. It is the universal consciousness from where these thoughts come to us. So in that sense, it is from there that they are coming. And uh, it is the capacity of the instrument that uh, determines how much of it will flow through and what will flow through. So it is the limitation of the instrument that allows only a fraction of the universal consciousness to be channelized in each individual. But it is those thoughts of others who are actually her intimates. The thoughts of others, all the individuals were her intimates. Their feelings close to her universal heart, thoughts and feelings closely related to aspects of the consciousness uh, being channelized by the individual and uh, at the structural level, we say by the brain and the rest of the nervous system. But then the brain is not the generator of consciousness. It is only a channelizer of consciousness. It is channelizing a small fraction of the consciousness. It is channelizing what it is equipped to do. And it is channelized the, in terms of the plasticity, which the individual has Uh, created in it by discipline, if it is mental and spiritual, mental discipline of the type that is involved in yoga, then now we have in fact some structural and biochemical reflections in the brain. We show that yes, the instrument is getting modified so that probably it can channelize a larger fraction of the universal consciousness and qualitatively a different type of fraction of that universal consciousness. So, But essentially all thoughts and feelings are coming from there from that higher source. Their bodies, her many bodies, kin to her. So once again, all matter which constitutes the body is also a manifestation of the same divine. So that is kin to her, the mother who was the divine itself in human form. She was no more herself but all the world. So her being just herself was only an illusion, was only a surface appearance. She was actually all the world. She was a single being yet all things. The world was her spirit's wide circumference. The thoughts of others were her intimates, their feelings close to her universal heart, their bodies, her many bodies, kin to her. She was no more herself, but all the world. Now, the Shakti needs love. Without love, it is not possible to do all that is done. Love is essentially about giving and uh, that giving comes spontaneously and cheerfully only because what we call in our language love. uh, It's only a word which we have coined, but it is essentially giving. And it's only the divine that gives and uh, does not expect anything in return. Doesn't expect anything in return? From whom will it expect? Because all is that. So the one that is all, the one that with besides him nothing exists, can only give, cannot take. So that is the original giver. And it is only in the creation that it creates that it's both give and take that goes on. But the creation is able to give only because it has taken. And anybody is able to give anything because the person has taken. But then there has to be an original giver who gave but did not take and that is the divine. And that giving is that because of that infinite love for what it manifested as. So. Here uh, is a passage about uh, the mother's love from book 3, canto 2. Hers is the mystery the night conceals. The spirit's alchemist energy is hers. So, there is a lot of camouflage. The, uh, The one who is all light manifests as night. Hers is the mystery the night conceals. So, the light becomes night, just a change of one word, but one letter, but then how much difference does it make? The spirit's alchemist energy is hers. It's like alchemy, converting ignorance into knowledge. But then where does that energy for that alchemy come from? That also comes from her. She is the golden bridge, the wonderful fire. The golden bridge between the heaven and earth, the wonderful fire that ignites that spark which leads to that alchemy. The luminous heart of the unknown is she, a power of silence in the depths of God. She is the force, the inevitable world, the magnet of our difficult ascent, the sun from which we kindle all our suns. So she has that luminous heart, the heart full of light, light, the light that represents all knowledge, the total truth, everything that is to be known and having known that nothing else remains to be known and the luminous heart of the unknown is she a power of silence in the depths of god so there is no need for any words there it's a power of silence she is the force the inevitable word the word with which the all manifestation perhaps began that she is that and she is the force which gave that power to that word to manifest, the magnet of our difficult ascent. What was manifested was imperfect, was ignorant, but then uh, the process didn't stop there. Uh, The process continued in the, through evolution, more and more of uh, the divinity was manifested and human beings look upon it manifesting more of the divinity as an ascent of consciousness. Now, going up needs an pull an attraction and who is that attraction the mother the magnet of our difficult ascent the sun from which we kindle all our sons all the sons that little little sons that are represented in each individual uh, they get their light from the sun from the original sun the sun with the capital s she is that sun with the capital s the light that leans from the unrealized vasts, from those aspects of the manifestation uh, which have that potential but what has not yet realized. So from that unrealized vast comes uh, that light. The joy that beckons from the impossible, the might of all that never yet came down. So all the possibilities that exist in the Divine have not manifested, more still remains to be manifested. And all that has been realized, all that has not yet been realized, all that seems possible, all that seems impossible, everything is encompassed in that one. And that one here is a description of Savitri, read the mother. All nature dumbly calls to her alone to heal with her feet the aching throb of life. Life has made difficult and painful because that is what draws us to the divine and uh, that's how all nature that is uh, the way it is manifested dumbly calls to her alone because that is where we find our solace that we find that immense love which can soothe us and it is with her feet that she heals the aching throb of life so she is the magnet she is the magnet because she can soothe this aching throb of life and break the seals on the dim soul of man so, it is the difficulties of life that help in breaking that seal, that breaking the seal which, uh, is, uh, satisfied, which is quite satisfied, which is quite happy and in fact attached to its ignorance. That seal is broken because of the difficulties of life and then one finds that it is this magnet, uh, it is uh, this immense love of the mother which can heal with her feet, that is what helps the person break those seals and what happens as a result of that? Kindle her fire in the closed heart of things. Things you know has been, is a sort of a ordinary thing that has been created, hiding the divinity but then to go closer to that divinity requires that fire and one finds the fire in the same source that heals the throb of life and which acts as a magnet. All here shall be one day her sweetness is home, all contraries prepare her harmony. So eventually all here that is in the manifestation will manifest her fully and uh, will be her appropriate home, the home of the sweetness that she is and all contraries, all the contrast between ignorance and knowledge, all the dualities of joy and sorrow. All these are, in fact, only necessities for preparing for her harmony. Towards her, our knowledge climbs, our passion gropes. And because of this magnetic character, because of this pull towards the ascent, because of the aspiration to go beyond the obvious, uh, our passion gropes. We get passionate about this journey and uh, we start groping because, groping because we can't see fully. At the most, our intellect is like a torchlight. We can which can see a few feet ahead, but the total view is not available to us. The total view is available only to the sun with the capital S, which can eliminate everything. You know, you can't compare a torch to a sun. In her, to the sun, in her miraculous rapture, we shall dwell. Her clasp shall turn to ecstasy our pain. So, while I mean, the journey is long and difficult, it is not a painful journey. In fact it is just the other way round. It can convert the pain of ordinary life into an ecstasy. And that's how we can just walk the path shown by her bright light and get lost in her miraculous rapture as we walk that path. Our self shall be one self with all through her, in her confirmed because transformed in her. Our self shall be one self with all which means that we will realize the oneness with all. Who will be the medium for that realization? Through her. One self shall be, our self shall be one self with all through her, in her confirmed because transformed in her. And uh, she is the one who will confirm that oneness to her because within her we will see everything. Our self shall be one self with all through her, in her confirmed because transformed in her our life shall find in its fulfilled response above the boundless hushed beatitudes below so as a result of this transformation where we will be able to see uh, the oneness between one between ourselves and the rest of the creation and our oneness with her as a result of the transformation what will happen our life shall find in its fulfilled response above which means That is, it will give us the fulfillment with what is above and what will happen below, the boundless hushed beatitudes below, the wonder of the embrace divine. So, we will find the boundless hushed beatitudes, that is the bliss that has been hushed by the ignorance. We will discover that, which is that… Beatitude that bliss that is boundless, and we'll also discover below the wonder of the embrace divine. We'll discover the miraculous and spectacular character of the divine embrace. So this is a, a rather it was a rather long passage from book three canto two, uh, which is, describes both the mother's uh, love, her divine nature, that is her being the divine itself in human form and uh, the miracle that she can work taking us from ignorance to knowledge. But then uh, most of us are not ready for that type of a transformation in a lifetime. It's a long journey, it may not happen in a life and therefore uh, that explains why, while the Disciples looked up to the mother, or in Savitri has been described, the way the sunflowers look at the sun. they turn to it, but find the sun beyond their reach. They can admire the sun, but can't actually do what may be expected for that transformation. And uh, that is why uh, at, in one passage, and in many other places also Sherbin was described the type of relationship that the mother had with most of the disciples. And this passage is from uh, Book 4, Canto 2. Only a few responded to her call. They could understand, they could appreciate, they could admire, but uh, they could not overcome their limitations enough to respond fully. Only a few responded to her call. Still fewer felt the screened divinity and strove to mate its Godhead with their own. Which means that uh, they found it difficult to see the divinity that she was, again because of their ignorance and that is why many doubts and questions which Sri had to answer through the letters, several letters that he wrote to the disciples. So still fewer, even fewer than those who responded to her call uh, were those who actually saw the screened divinity. Even those who responded, some of them just saw her as uh, a human being who was uh, wise enough to guide them, but they didn't see in her. Uh, the uh, fact that she was in fact the divine itself in human form. So, only a few responded to her call. Still fewer felt the screened divinity and strove to mate its its godhead uh, with their own. So, the Savitri, read the mother, was the divine, it was the godhead, but its godhead with their own, which means they, those who got attracted to her, those who responded to her call, they also had the same divinity. To fuse the two and see them as one, they could not do because they could not see her as the divine. Approaching with some kinship to her heights, uplifted towards luminous secrecies or conscious of some splendor hidden above, they leaped to find her in a moment's flash. It was only some glimpses, momentary flashes that they experienced. and. Uh, when did that happen? When they approached with some kinship, some sort of affinity with her, they tried to approach her heights. They may not reach her heights, but they tried to approach her. Uplifted towards luminous secrecies or conscious of some splendour hidden above. So, uh, they could see that there was a secrecy, but yet there was something luminous about it which took them there and that was an uplifting movement. Uplifted towards luminous secrecies or conscious of some splendour hidden above, they leaped to find her in a moment's flash. So they got those momentary uh, flashes, those momentary glimpses, every time they approached her feeling her and themselves as one, feeling a kinship and uh, exploring those secrecies which were full of light. They were secrecies and yet they were not dark secrecies, they were luminous secrecies, bright secrecies. or conscious of some splendor hidden above or they looked at it as some sort of a splendor, something like a treasure, a magnificent treasure, which was hidden above. And uh, when they did that, they found that in that momentary flash, they got a glimpse of the divine. Glimpsing a light in a celestial vast but could not keep the vision and the power and fell back to the life's ordinary, dull ordinary tone. So, they got that, but then since they couldn't stay with it, they, it was only a flash, a glimpse, they fell back to life's dull or ordinary tone. This process of sliding back to what we are accustomed to, what is habitual for us, is a very common phenomenon on the path of yoga. We make a progress, but then we slide down. So it's not always up. It's back and forth. It's not a straight path. It's a rather bumpy ride, a zigzag path, far from the linear progress that one would expect and like. So that is what uh, Sri has described in this. And it is because of this tendency to lapse into ordinary consciousness that the disciples continued to have many questions and doubts about who the mother really was and Shirabindo, as Sampadharanji said, tried to answer it very categorically in many letters. And uh, some of these letters have been published at the end of the mother's uh, monumental work. Monumental not because of its size, but uh, because of its quality. Prayers and meditations. A little more than 300 prayers uh, which were, uh, which have been published, they are enough to give us a glimpse into what the mother truly was and therefore that is the type of scripture rather than a book. Prayers and Meditations is a scripture. At the end of that have been appended very appropriately four letters by Sri Aurobindo in which he has tried to clear some of the doubts and questions which the disciples continued to have about who the mother really was. They had these doubts and questions because in spite of getting those... uh, Glimpses and flashes of insight where they saw her as the divine, there was a tendency to lapse back into the ordinary consciousness. So, in one of these letters, Shorabindu says, It is the mother in the lower nature addressing the mother in the higher nature. So, in these prayers and meditations, quite often the mother is addressing the divine. So, if she was the divine, then why did she have to address the divine? So, what Shorabindu is clarifying here is that she is. Uh, addressing the divine, the unmanifest divine while herself manifesting in human form. It is the mother in the lower nature addressing the mother in the higher nature. The mother herself carrying on the sadhana of the earth consciousness for the transformation, praying to herself above from whom the forces of transformation come. So the divine praying to the divine is what is happening here. The divine in uh, form on earth And having put on uh, the consciousness of this earth, is praying to the divine from where the force of transformation comes. So, a few lines later in the same letter, he says, "This is the mother who is carrying on the sadhana, and the divine, and the divine mother, both being one, but in different poises. The mother on earth is in the poise of uh, the earth consciousness, and uh, the one to whom she is praying is." free from the bounds of this earth consciousness. And both turn to the same divine master. This kind of prayer from the divine to the divine, you find also in the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. So the divine praying to the divine is uh, not something which is unknown. Uh, And uh, in the Ramayana when Sita is lost, Rama behaves like an ordinary husband, as if he doesn't know. And uh, where Sita has gone, he knew everything and yet, he behaves as if he doesn't know and he has just lost Sita. And uh, he has to depend upon Garuda to guide him to where uh, she, uh, she was. So when the divine uh, appears on earth in human form, it also takes on the limitations of human beings. So that is why the divine, praying to the divine. Then there is a question that uh, somebody has asked which begins like this, uh, there are many who hold the view that she was human but now embodies the divine mother. So, whatever it may mean, so he is trying to say that she is a human, but uh, she has made progress and uh, now therefore embodies the divine consciousness. But then Sri Aurobindo clarifies in answer to this, that the divine puts on an appearance of humanity, assumes the outward human nature in order to tread the path and show it to human beings, but does not cease to be the divine. So it is just to set the right type of example, uh, provide the guidance which human beings will find within their reach and comprehension that the divine puts on a human form, also puts on the human limitations and performs the sadhana like a human being. So it is for that reason. But that does not mean that the divine ceases to be the divine. So does not cease to be the divine. You know, it's something like uh, an adult sometimes playing with the child. The adult can play very well. But uh, if you try to play cricket with the child, you will make sure that uh, you also either your wicket falls or you give a very easy catch to the child so that you are out, you will not score too many runs and you will bowl and field in such a way that the child is able to make quite a few runs and gets encouragement. Otherwise, and you will also make sure that some of the games or most of the games, it's the child who wins rather than you win the game. So all that happens because you are put on the appearance of the child. So that is what the divine does when it takes a human form. It uh, puts on the weaknesses of the human being. It behaves like a human being. And uh, so that's why Shrivindo says that many may hold the view that she has, uh, she is human, but has uh, acquired a divine character through her sadhana. That view held by many is erroneous. That is not the right view. So in very categoric terms, he says that uh, she is the divine. So now, in conclusion, I would say that uh, well, I mean, those who had the mother in front of them in flesh and blood could have this type of doubts, and then they could be told that no, she is the divine, and therefore she they could communicate with the divine in human form the way Arjun could with Sri Krishna in the Gita. How about uh, us? Many of us turned to Sri Aurobindo and the mother after they were not in the physical. So how about us? Well, all I can say from uh, my experience as well as that of many other disciples is that uh, the physical presence is not essential. You can get the same type of uh, uh, love and guidance from the mother even when she is not in the physical. People have seen the Divine even in her eyes in a picture, in her pictures. And this picture can be seen even with the eyes closed mentally. So it's not necessary to have that. And to me personally, I mean, Sri has been the guide and uh, the one who has shown the path, who has answered questions. The mother has been the one who has showered love, divine grace, a sense of security, a sense of protection. And when it comes to questions, she is the one who has made all questions unnecessary, all questions redundant. So, that has been the type of uh, complementary sort of nature of the uh, two who were actually one. So, with this I will stop here and uh, I think very soon it will be the panel discussion. Before that if there is anything else that I am expected, I will try to answer. Thank you,
0: and Dr. Ramesh Visgani for this wonderful keynote address. Actually, I was looking at the curve of the your talk and you started. Uh, with the feminine and the masculine principles from the biology and how the masculine transfers the knowledge but it's the feminine who gives it's the form and structures and at the end you tried to mention how the divine manifests in the human form and how should we approach it was really enlightening for all of us. I think if there are few questions for Professor Vizlani, we would take, else we can proceed to the panel discussion directly. Okay, now we shall move to the second part of this uh, webinar that is the panel discussion. And uh, I would like to introduce the first panelist, Ms. Gitanjali Ji. Ms. Gitanjali is a social entrepreneur and educationist. After having founded several business and social ventures, she has set up the Himalayan Institute of Alternative Ladakhs as its founding CEO and Dean. Itanjali is a spiritual seeker with a deep interest in Indian spirituality. She is a lifelong student of Sri Aurobindo and the mother. and She is interested in Sanskrit vedas and Upanishads and strives to apply her learnings gleaned from this uh, sacred text to indigenize existing educational frameworks. I welcome Itanjali ji. To today's panel discussion, and she would be speaking on the evolution of the concept of Shakti and feminiz- feminism in the world and where we are currently headed in the light of Sri Aurobindo and the
3: Namaste, Gitanjali.
4: Yeah, namaste, and I am on the cusp of good morning and good afternoon to all of you. Thank you so much. Uh, Ramesh ji for that wonderful keynote uh, speech. I only intend to take it further by contemporizing and contextualizing it to where we are today. And um, if you remember in the human cycle, Shurbindo says that the symbolic age was a mindset which saw everything on the earth plane as an inferior image of that divine working. So if we are talking about the mother and the divine Shakti and all is she, the inferior form of that on earth is represented by women and the role of women, how has it been and where is it supposed to go if we have to carry on the task of transformation and to bring this world back on i must admit it is seriously sidetracked now that uh, this russia and ukraine uh, you know and uh, other things so if i may tongue in cheek say that this world of war and strife was when men ruled it so uh, let us look at how the future is going to be and uh, can it be different so in the early 70s uh, and uh, and early and late 70s, I remember as an eight-year-old, there were two narratives and motives uh, which were showcased in films and everywhere which used to trouble me a lot. The first was that every boss was a man in Hindi films and his secretary was a woman. And I, as an eight-year-old, I used to wonder that when I grow up, I'm going to become the boss and have a man as a secretary. And I completed my MBA. And when I first joined a company, a manufacturing company as assistant manager, my secretary was a man. The second narrative was women, was, women were showcased as helpless damsels in distress, you know, tied to chairs or trees and waiting for the hero, the man, you know, the knight in shining armor. To come and protect them and this used to bother me also that why can't she take care of herself and defend herself you know why doesn't she become physically strong and that's what led me to you know take my training in karate become a black belt in karate and a world champion and now i've started this movement called peaceful warriors which aims to make every girl in india a black belt so the reason i'm telling you this is that when such questions were coming in the minds of an 8 year old let's see what was happening in the world okay so and this was happening in a remote part of orissa in balasore but during the same times women across the world were breaking the traditional male bastions in 1963 valentina tereshkova had conquered space Three years later, Indira Gandhi became the first women prime minister of India. In 1975, Janko Tabai scaled Everest. And a few years later in 1979, Margaret Thatcher became the first women prime minister in UK. This was the proverbial smashing of the patriarchy era. The social system, so patriarchy is a social system designed by man in which they held primary power be it in political leadership, social privilege, moral authority, or control of property and resources. And women was, the role of women was subjugated to a secondary role. And we will come to it that how, when we trace back from the Vedic times, this was not so and what led to this. But before that, let us continue with this story. That this patriarchy was challenged, and that that was the birth of feminism. So the birth of feminism was in the early uh, late nineteenth and early twentieth century, in response to this patriarchal hegemony. And in this first phase, it was women's voting rights, no right to suffrage, uh, which was achieved. Similarly, nineteen sixty to eighties was what is considered the second phase of feminism, where women were fighting for equal wages, opportunities, employments, which was erstwhile denied to them. Can you imagine 50% of the population denied of self-expression? How is it ever possible to take the world to its glory and where it is meant to be if 50% of the population is not allowed? So barring some misrepresentations of this feminism, which was something like man-hating or women taking up the vices of men like smoking or drugs or alcohol, barring these misrepresentations, feminism was call of the Shakti, of the women power to come back into the mainstream and to start contributing to it because. The human cycle was taking its turn from the age of rationalism we were moving and that's what we will look at it today so in a way the women proved that not only they could play the game which was earlier uh, dominated by men but they could even play it better the only thing is it came at a price in the process of succeeding as defined, success as defined by the rubrics of mascul- um, masculinity, women had to sacrifice some of their finer aspects of their womenhood and Im- instead imbibe the qualities of power, dominion, and competition instead of their inherent qualities of caring, sharing, and collaboration. To the extent that even the successful women had these epithets when, for instance, Rani Lakshmi Bhai fought. You know, the poem that paid eulogy to her was khoob Ladi Mardani to Jhansi You know, so just because she fought well, it can only happen if she's Mardani or or like a man. Or when we had a strong woman like Margaret Thatcher, she was called the uh, Iron Lady and the only man in the parliament. You know. So this is what women were looked at or they had to become if they equaled men and but if we have to summarize whatever happened in the 20th century and the early parts of 21st century is that women got their political freedom their legal freedom to vote they got their economic freedom, they have the capacity to be financially independent, because as long as one is financially dependent, one cannot have a cannot be independent in one's thinking either. They achieved emotional freedom, emotional independence, learn, they achieved moral independence, women could form their own worldview. Before, they were only support, only the man could dream, and they had to be the supporters. And now, so far, so good. Okay, women have proven that they can equal men, or but the going forward, the true relation of both men and women can only be if there is mutual respect, independence, and complementariness. As long as there is a dependence of any kind, there cannot be a true relation. So at this point, we pause before we move into where the future is to bring home this point that the empowerment of women has a complementary aspect to it, which is empowerment of men as well. If we go back 60 years back, when my grandfather, for instance, went out and worked and earned, even did all the shopping and my mother, her grandmother was at home taking care of the house. That was the narrative between the man and woman. Fast forward 60 years. Today, we have women who can do everything that the man traditionally did. She can go out, earn her livelihood. She can drive cars and planes and do her shopping and uh, head companies and all of that. But if we look at men, how much have they evolved? Can men cook? make their beds, take care of themselves. You know, when I was growing up, my mother used to say that in the seventies, women have to be brought up like men. And now when I was bringing up my son, I used to say that men have to be brought up like women. They have to be taught to handle themselves, their emotions, not to be dependent. And this is beautifully summarized by the mother who says that both men and women have three weaknesses and as long as they don't overcome these weaknesses true relationship between man and women cannot be found so women says the mother look for protection for security and are attached to motherhood similarly men look for comfort of the home need to possess and control somebody and the sexual desire and as long as both men and women do not overcome these weaknesses they will remain Strangely enslaved to each other and tied down in weakness, and cannot be in their full potentials. Khalil Gibran puts it beautifully when he says that the man and woman have to be like the strings of a lute, that though quiver with the same music, though stand apart, or they should be like an oak and a cypress that do not lean on each other but stand as two independent trees and can support others. So what about the 21st century? Is it going to be any different from its predecessors? Would it be defined by values and aspirations which are different from that have dominated before? So let's look at this, that the past 20th century has been the age of reason and individuality, of political expansion and global economic globalization. It is a century of hard power and dominion mind was a leader and a mental approach to life is essentially a masculine quality the century was dominantly patriarchal reflecting and celebrating those values and if women had to succeed they had to become like men and women did try to equal men in most of the fields but can we say that women can stay content at what they have achieved This equality with men, or do their roles go beyond it and rise higher and lead the way to the future? Because the 21st century, on the contrary, is poised to be a precursor of the age of subjectivity and spirituality. And it is this age that the spirit, that soft power that pervades all existence, would be the leader of our lives. It is not through power and dominion, but it is through nurturing like a mother and caring would be the qualities of leaders in the future. And it is in this age that the Shakti, you know, the represented by the divine Shakti and the women as being an inferior power of it can emerge. So women can emerge as natural leaders by being themselves. You may wonder, women as a leader in the spiritual age, were they not kept away from monasteries and places of worship? Were they not considered detractors on the path of spirituality? But that is what women look at now. The spirituality that we recently believed before Sri came and redefined spirituality as life-affirming was life-negating. And when spirituality becomes just esoteric aspiration for the beyond, then it becomes life-negating. And before we uh, look at where we are headed, let's go back to the Vedic period. In the Vedic period, we had not just Vishwamitras and Malduchandas and all the great rishis, but we had Rishikas like Savitri, Lopamudra, Paulami, Gargi, Maitri, Apala and so on. The, even the entire concept of the Vedas is, the, is Aditi, the Divine Transcendental Mother, who was the mother to the seven Adityas. You know, the seven Adityas, uh, the Varuna, Mitra, Ariman, Bhaga, Dakshams and Surya. So these were the seven uh, this is the vedic view that the the seven uh, adityas who um, the varuna mitra and aryaman were constituted the trinity and Dakshamsa and surya constituted the triple world of supermind and um, they they were the sons of aditi who was the divine mother and all these as sons were her functions who presided over manifestation and she looked up uh, you know at it as transcendental mother so in during these times the role of the shakti was it was the the age of ishwara shakti where the woman was considered equal to man as were the rishis so were the rishikas as were the godheads uh, who were masculine they were goddesses that were feminine you know aditi herself was the divine mother and the role of women in society the sacrifice had to have both the husband and the wife or the man and woman their roles were equal and that was the golden age of india but as we progressed during the vedantic and the sankhya periods and we were introduced to the concepts of purusha and prakriti as two different you know, entities, and the prakriti as subject or inferior to the purusha, that happened when this life-affirming spirituality of the Vedas symbolized beautifully by its sacrifice. You know, the sacrifice was not a physical sacrifice of pouring ghee into the fire. Sacrifice meant life. It meant the pouring of our energies. The ghee, represented are purified faculties of consciousness that is poured into the will the divine Agni you know to to make this earth a better place it was transformative spirituality and when it was transformative spirituality men and women were equal because the role of women in making life better was acknowledged and she played an equal part but when spirituality in India moved towards Advaita and a pure um, you know, um, aspiration towards moksha or nirvana, and the world began to be looked at as Maya or illusion, along with it went the role of women as inferior to man. And so we see this entire fall of the women which was parallel to the way spirituality came to be perceived up till now when shirobindo has come to tell us that the path that the future spirituality the age of spirit is not life negating it is not going away to the monastery and giving up life but in making bringing this kingdom of heaven here on earth and his his magnum opus is called life divine it is to make life divine and that is where women her role as a representative of the divine shakti here on earth becomes paramount it is here that she can naturally play the role of a mother of a leader because the whole paradigm of leadership of power of dominion is going to change from this hard power to this soft nurturing you know power and we are already seeing through this movements of feminism this reversal of this devaluation of the women that had come and therefore What is it to be a representative of the divine Shakti on earth as a woman? What is the role that the woman has to play, and what is it that she has to work uh, towards? So, having worked on physical freedom, uh, political freedom, legal freedom, economic freedom, emotional freedom, and moral freedom, today. Going forward, women have to learn to be spiritually free. So, a 21st century woman should be free from all stereotypes. She is not to be the one to be typecast into this or another. She would be free to choose the expression of our soul. She may choose that to be as a homemaker or as a president of a country. She may choose to dress simply or Gorgeously, she may choose motherhood or you know, to be a very different path, but it is the self determination, it is not to be defined by others' ideas and other people's ideas of beauty and success because she would be self aware, she would be a spiritual seeker guided by the higher. You know forces and be open to the mother and Bindu if she is uh, on this path or her ishta devata but she would be aware of her deeper aspirations find out her uniqueness and her raison d'etre on earth so to me the 21st century woman or where this whole uh shakti and uh Manifestation of the divine Shakti on earth can only find its culmination when the woman who represents this divine Shakti here on earth comes on her own, she gets back her power, but not the way it has been done. you know it she does not resent or react or revolt to what has done before but she rises in her own heights she rises in her own expression of swadharma and take her natural position of uh, leading the world as the precursor of the subjective and spiritual age and she becomes a natural leader taking the world into very different and new ways of self-expression, both personally and collectively, than what has been uh, in the centuries of the past. So we are at this unprecedented movement uh, and moment of Earth's revolution. And the supramental realization that is here awaiting and beckoning us cannot happen if half of the energy of the divine is not empowered and educated and self-aware for her expression. And this is our duty, our duty as an individual level if we are at home as a woman to try to realize our highest, if we are a man to support uh, and to enable that as a collectivity, through policies, as an ed- as educators, you know, to have um, the right mix, to break our own stereotypes in our minds and as the mother herself exemplified in her life uh, when uh, the girls and boys of the ashram had uh, similar dress they did similar activities and it was never that they were looked at as souls as souls that are here for their self-expression and finally this equality will not be of the outsider of the form but an equality of self-expression and a complementarity of approach and for that both the aspects both the, and we have a long 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 way to go i mean i'm uh, surprised even in the 21st century there are a lot of avenues denied uh, to women I was surprised to read that only two percent of women CEOs, CEOs in in India are women, only two percent, and um, we have a long way to go. But the mother, as the Aditi, as the transcendental mother, as the universal mother through her Maheshwari, Mahakali, Mahalakshmi, and uh, Mahasaraswati aspects, exhorts us that both men and women become complete individuals men giving up their stereotypal what makes them men acquire the sensitivity the approach you know the looking after the the world view of women and women to acquire the qualities of men so that we develop to become integral beings and enable the divine Shakti uh, to do its works, because it is essential that we become Chaturvarnyas. You know, we become uh, integral with the mind, emotions, body developed independent of who one is. And we have seen this this trend happening across the world and uh, i mean our education is where we have to focus right from so this i think after achieving uh, financial freedom the other important freedom to be achieved by women is this physical freedom before she can move to spiritual freedom I think every woman should be able to be physically, freely to be able to go everywhere, to be able to defend herself, to have that power. We need to break and smash those stereotypes of shining armor, knight coming to help or to save. Because if she's the mother is the creatrix and the executrix and so her uh, reflection on earth, which is through us women have to be. This reflection has to reflect her and the entire ecosystem should enable this transformation and this change. Thank you.
1: Thank you
0: Gitanjali ji for actually wonderfully putting the cooperation that existed between man and female in the Vedic case and how it has been transformed or not exactly transformed, one can say degraded in the conventional stage. But uh, yeah, before I move on to my second panelist, I would uh, like your uh, comments on this concept of uh, the mov- feminism movement. Uh, the It seems a bit problematic because it creates unnecessary divisions between men and women. And and you had also mentioned that it tries to make a man out of a woman and also a woman out of a man. So there are few problems that it has. And if we look at the history of the humanity, the, the presence of women in the public sphere in the last century, is mainly because of the institutional and the technological change. Because from a factory-based culture, there were more corporate-based culture. So women uh, found it easier for their self-expressions. And uh, the critical theories and the critical theories like the feminism, they are a bit problematic because uh, I would like to point out a few or I would like point two points. First is that. Uh, As we see that this idea of exporting democracy that has been taken by US is similar to this idea of exporting feminism to other countries as well. And what it does is that it suppresses the indigenous feminine cultures of the indigenous communities or countries that are already present outside of the West. And uh, so in that sense, this is problematic. And also here I would like to quote Sri Aurobindo and I found it quite fascinating because at that time he had that clarity of these class divisions and that individual rights, which I rarely found in any other political leader of that time. And he says that the pursuit of social justice, and he is being critical of social justice, the pursuit of social justice through the stark assertion of individual rights or class interests and desires, must be a source of continual struggle and revolution. It may end in an exaggeration of the will in each to live his own life and to satisfy his own ideas and desires, which will produce a serious malaise or a radical trouble in the social body. So what are your thoughts on this uh, aspect of feminism movement?
4: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Abhishek. It is the same way when Shirobindu says that harmony is the end and it is desirable. But when the law of jungle prevails, one has to get up and fight, right? He says that in the human cycle. So there is this final where we want to go and where are we today? So as I said that if we disregard the misrepresentations of feminism, and take it as a movement where one half of the world's population. So I I don't endorse it, or it is not the way forward, that is what I was talking about. But it started because they were kept out of most decision making. You know, you must watch some of these interesting um you know documentaries which 15th century women, you know, be it Japan or Europe one did not have any other uh, professional option i mean either you groom yourself to marry somebody or if you have the money and the dowry to give or if you are a, a woman of intellect and culture there is no avenue for you you know and the only way they could do is to become courtesans or to become geishas so isn't it it's scary i mean um, can you imagine that i mean in the 15th century is not too long ago just 5 600 years ago one did not have a voice. There was no way one could uh, express. So, yes, what Shirbindo says, I fully agree with it, that these are stepping stones. These are in between what what all happened in the 19th and 20th century is that people asking for their rights and all, but we have to go beyond. As I said, women's feminism should not now be a resentment or you know, revo- revolt or a revenge for what they have. As is in the case of the, um, you know, the lot of other social justice which we talk about, like the um, the various classes which have been um, uh, subordinated or, over time. So the way is not to retaliate like in women, but for each one to find their role under the sun, their position under the sun. And that can only happen when each one finds their swadharma and their self-determination. But to find that even the other half has to change, the fathers of the daughters, the husbands, you know, the sons, they should also be, they should also evolve and be empowered for the self-determination to happen. Otherwise, it uh, the it is visible as a physical uh, confrontation, and it comes down in the physical as war. Okay, so the point I was making was that along with whatever feminism has done if we bar the negatives of it it has brought women onto the playing field you know and even they have been acknowledged as who can play this game and even play it better but for women to go forward this is not the motive that they have to follow what has worked in the past they have to find their individuality and originality And in the spiritual age that is to come, they don't have to anymore try to become like men and imbibe those values. But this is a clarion call to all women that it is the golden time that they can be themselves, you know, and go forward in how, and we have the ministry of the mother, documentations of how she, uh, you know, ran the ashram or how, how her approach was. And if we see that, it was a unique approach right and it was not any less effective and uh so and i'm saying that not only women have to take that approach but even men have to take that approach this whole approach so so the divine shakti is not just the women uh you know it comes to everybody but the expression is what what we are talking about that man and woman are not just it, it's not it just happened it is that reflection on the earthly plane of the Ishwara and Shakti, okay, the consciousness and uh, power, they represent that and how they can become one as Ishwara Shakti and, you know, take this evolution forward. So this whole feminism movement ha- was like a, you know, whenever something goes like a pendulum to this side, before it comes to the mean, it has to go to the other side. So that happens when we have this, uh, you know, the Dalit movement, or we have this women uh, feminism. It is just that striking back, you know, or even when renaissance happened because there was dark ages that preceded, but not to stop here, but to go forward. And this is the, the uh, responsibility lies both with women and men, you know, uh, women also have to grow into becoming uh, integral beings, men also have to grow to become integral beings. You know, our concept of Ardha Narishwara of both the sides. And only then can the four aspects of the mother uh, you know, begin to play freely amongst each of us.
0: Yeah, actually, the, you made a very good point that uh, this concept of equality is about the self-expression of the Swadharma, and that's the thing that we should all be imbibing, and not exactly looking at the equality of forms, because that's not an that's not the pursuit of the subjective as as well. So thank you, Gitanjali ji. Now I shall move to the next panelist, Mohit Bansal, and just a brief introduction about Mohit Bansal. Mohit Vansal is an IIT Delhi graduate. Currently, he is working as a data analyst. He is interested in looking at all fields of human knowledge through the eyes of Indian seers. As a devotee of Sri Aurobindo and the mother, he surrenders himself at their feet. Now, I welcome Mohit Ji to share his own piece. Namaste. everyone
5: here. So first of all, I would like to thank Ramesh Ji for providing his insights around how Shiva window and the mother have described the feminine aspect of the divine and how it plays out in the manifestation. I uh, particularly like the point that Ramachari made about the dimorphism in nature and how the how nature uses it to bring in innovation and knowledge to to the creation. Also, thanks to Gitanjali Chi for throwing light on how the feminist movement has evolved throughout the ages, and especially sharing her personal experiences, which are really very motivating. I want to take up the same problem that Giangeangeli took up, so the relationship between the masculine and feminine, and which has been a major political issue around hundred for around hundred years now and I'll try to look at mother and in those words and how they have described the relationship between these two aspects of the divine and what is of what we can make of the true relation between a man and a woman so before starting, I think it is important to look at the distinction between the feminine and masculine because uh, Nowhere we can find clear-cut definitions for what is feminine and what is masculine, right? So the distinction cannot be put in very rigid terms because this is something that belongs to above the mental plane on which we exist. But since mind has to create some sort of structure, so we have described some aspects as feminine, some, some, some qualities as masculine. So I'll mention certain dualities that have been used to explain this distinction. So the first distinction like Gitanjali ji and Ramesh uh, have already mentioned. So it is the Ishvara and Shakti distinction. So Ishvara is the conscious Lord. Shakti is the executive power, conscious executive power, I would say, that executes the will of the Ishvara. And here there is no duality as such. It is a two in one principle. So uh, it is a bayune entity like we say in Ardhanar Ishwara, right? So here there is no distinction. It is one entity which is taking two poises as Ishvara and Shakti. Then there is the concept of Purusha and Prakriti. So Purusha is the conscious soul while Prakriti is the executive force and Purusha is the witness and the enjoyer while Prakriti executes the task. So this is another duality that is generally used to explain masculine being the Purusha while uh, feminine being the Prakriti. Another distinction is between Brahman and Maya and this is certainly during the ascetic phase of Indian spirituality women have been Seen as as a certain correcting influence on the seekers, and they have been relegated to the position of Maya who deludes the sincere seeker. And this was for a short period in the Indian spiritual tradition, but this has not been there in the previous Vedantic or Vedic experiences. Then there is the duality of Dakshina mark and Vam marg. So Dakshina mark is the path of knowledge, discipline, order, ethics, while there is the Vam mark. Vam mark is the Basically, the journey through esthesis or ananda or liberation. So, Dakshina and Vam Margat are are two streams in Indian philosophy or Indian thought. And Dakshina Marg is more associated with the masculine aspect, while Vamarg is more associated with the feminine aspect. And it is very interesting to note that in current politics as well, we see that the politics is divided into right and left. Right is more on the side of order and ethics, while WAM uh, or the left is more on the side of uh, liberation and ananda, or uh, liberation and freedom, right? So, and then we do see that on an overall level, in, in, in the, on, a, on a global level, right? Women lean more towards the left, while men lean more towards the right. This is not not specific to any culture or any particular country, but at an overall level, we see this distinction between men and women. So it is very interesting to note this point as well. Then there is the duality of Chit and Tapas. So Chit and Tapas, uh, like we say in Satchitanand, Chit is the consciousness, while Tap is the force. And this is the distinction between Vedanta and Tantra as well, where Vedanta places focus on consciousness, while Tantra places focus on the power or the Shakti aspect. And the masculine side is certainly associated with the chit, while the feminine side is more associated with the tap. So Shiva and the mother have used all these dualities throughout their words, throughout their uh, throughout their description of masculine and feminine. And uh, the primarily the primary way that they have described feminine and masculine is uh, masculine is the part that takes care of the conception and vision part and the willing part while the execution is on the side of the feminine. So the feminine executes while the masculine conceives. So these principles, we can say in a certain sense are eternal. So on the supra-physical planes, this distinction exists as an eternal symbol for the Earth, right? But material nature uses this symbol to create something of it in the terrestrial evolution, to use it for its own purpose like Ameshi mentioned, right? So this difference doesn't arise with, arise with the humans. So it is there in the pre-existing plants, in, 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 uh, in, in animals as well. And the nature has used this distinction for her own purpose. Like nature has placed different principles at the origin of different groupings of people. Similarly, she has placed different, uh, these principles as the origin of this sexual difference. And she is trying to create certain kind of complex harmony out of it the nature nature always uses these specializations in order to create a more complex harmony like shir has mentioned in the synthesis of yoga and this is something that we see in this aspect as well in the uh, diversion between these two lines so what we see in nature is that in the plant world in the animal world this distinction is already there and the human humanity when it came on the scene, it has used this distinction to create certain structures and institutions around it. There are certain social structures and institutions like the concept of marriage, the concept of polygamy and monogamy, right? the patriarchal structure that we see in more prominence than the matriarchal structure and so on. So these institutions have been developed and they certainly had a very high thought behind them when they were created or they were created because of the pressure of life on on humanity but over a period of time these have degenerated as 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 we can certainly observe now why they have degenerated so Shirabindo explains this uh, using a complete sociological model in his book the human cycle uh, where he explains the five stages through which the society goes and uh, i'll just try to list down those stages and I'll take one institution in this case, which is marriage, and we will see how marriage has progressed throughout these different stages uh, of society. So, uh, like uh, Gitantriji has already mentioned about the symbolic age. So the five stages are symbolic, typal, conventional, individualistic and subjective. So symbolic is the first stage, where the spiritual idea is the governing factor. All the forms, all the rituals are symbolic. Everything is Uh, Seen as a reflection of certain spiritual principle or certain spiritual existence, and even though the principles are fixed, the social forms are very lax and very adjustable. So, for example, in the case of marriage, we see that in the Vedic age, which was a sort of symbolic age, we can say uh, there is the marriage of Surya and Soma, uh, which is used as a cover for the human marriage. So, it is the divine marriage which we are trying to reproduce in the human marriage on this earth and this symbol of surya and soma which uh, we can see as the marriage of knowledge and ananda so this is seen as a template for the human couple so the symbolic age is the age of the spiritual idea then comes the typal age where the psychological types are fixed and Basically, the form is given an honor honor, and there is a psychological justification given for every every ritual in society or institution in society. For example, for marriage, uh, it would be said that it is the dharma of the couple that they have to marry, they have to bear children uh, for the pitras or for the maintenance of society or for their own psychological well-being. So the dharma of the individual, of the society, of the nation, so everything leads to
1: sanction for marriage. The typal and symbolic
5: are ages where there are no such oppressive tendencies we can say. But in the conventional age, in the third age, when the form becomes more important in the spirit, when the external support is used as uh, as a means to suppress the individualistic tendencies or the freedom-free moment of life, it is then when the, when the structures become more oppressive. So for example, in the conventional age, the ma- marriage would be justified in the name of tradition only. So people would be pushed into it because the tradition has to be maintained. The psychological and the spiritual justification of it would be moved to the background. So, the conventional age leads to certain oppression and certain problems that uh, we are still dealing with in the world today. The conventional age gives way to the individualistic age because of the pressure. Uh, the man begins to think about the structures in society. The man and woman think what is their role in society, why are the rituals so, what is the justification for it. And it is primarily a destructive age when the initial order is replaced by the individualistic tendencies and people try to think of new ways of doing the same thing. So, For example, in the case of marriage, we see that uh, it is an institution which has broken down mostly in the West, not so much in the East, but East is also catching up. And we see that people are now skipping marriage as something that they have to pass through. They are trying to find out new ways like living and so on to find ways to do the same thing but not in the same conventional routine that their forefathers did. And finally, we have the subjective age. In the subjective age, um, there is a turn within to recover the deeper self and try to find out the true principles again on which the life can be made. And this is something that we see uh, that the mother tried to implement in the ashram. And and in the Oroville as well, and in Oroville, specifically, I would like to quote that uh, today is, by the way, Oroville's fifty-fourth anniversary as well. In Oroville, Mother mentioned that there will be no marriages, but the focus will be on the soul union. So Oroville is, I think, one step that we can see that uh, that the society has taken towards the subjective age. So this is how basically society develops and it moves in a cycle where the subjective gives way into the symbolic age. But the point here is that however you define feminine and masculine principles, there are no such pure types as of now. So we can see that each man has certain masculine and feminine traits in him, and each woman has certain masculine and feminine traits in her. uh, Shirvandan mother has stressed this point many times in the talk that there are no pure feminine and masculine types existing on earth now. And when a child asks the mother that why, if there are no pure distinctions as such, why there is this still this disharmony and enmity and talking of individual rights uh, based on this identity. The mother mentioned that this is because men and women don't know themselves. They are slaves to their forms. So whenever we get up in the morning we see ourselves in the mirror and we are reminded that we are men and women and we try to adjust ourselves according to uh the belief structure that is built around that particular respect so if i'm a man i will think that i have to behave in a certain way i have to do certain things only then i will be masculine and similarly the females would think that way and even when the when when people have tried to overcome these limitations it is mostly on the outer side the psychological a change has not been made so the mother quotes about the feminist movement that when the feminists were trying to imitate men and they were trying to become men by wearing short hair or by wearing collared t-shirts they they were uh, trying to attract attention and whenever anyone treated them by as a man not as a woman so they got very angry So Mother mentioned that this is because the psychological change has not been made, only the outer change has been attempted and the psychological change will take a lot more time and a lot more uh, attention on the swadharma or the soul. So but even if there are no pure types as such, there are certain habitual tendencies that we have inherited because of moving through these these ages, uh, these evolutionary stages, right? and these leads to certain problems in society um, that we are still tackling and i'll try to give three examples here first in the outer life there was an idea of masculine superiority which the mother actually mentioned many times that man feels superior to women and that is why he tries to lead her men tried to cre- men try to create certain social institutions uh, for their own advantage. And this is certainly true of the conventional age of society. So the original institutions which were developed based on certain higher thoughts, they become a um, tool during the conventional age for the masculine element to take control of the feminine element. And that has led to a lot of oppression in the society. And that is what the revolt that we now see is about. The claims of superiority actually started breaking when uh, one of the examples that again see is that when women after the world war uh, when when the men were on the fighting on the front lines uh, the women had to take up the jobs of their husbands or sons or fathers, and they proved as capable as men in doing these those jobs and uh, people found newfound respect for the feminine uh, feminine leadership. But now the pendulum has swung to the other side like Gitanjali's also mentioned right now. There is an idea of feminine superiority as well in certain circles but since it is a transition period we will see that the pendulum will go down the middle in some time and there will be a mature understanding between the two genders. This is about the outer life. In the inner life we see that during the ascetic phase and which was overlapping with the conventional stage of society there was a idea that women were a corrupting influence in the spiritual journey. Women had their own independent spiritual path, but men didn't want to associate with women on the spiritual journey because it was thought that it would lead you away from the divine. Now, the whole ascetic movement is breaking under the forces that the mother and Shivindu have brought. Their, uh, the idea of transformative yoga is now taken up by various gurus, maybe not in the name of Srivindu and the mother, but it is still a movement that is beginning. And people are now not, Running away from life, and but they are embracing life, and in in that way, they are trying to embrace the feminine aspect of life as well. Women are no longer seen as a corrupting influence, but they are seen as a partners in whatever journey that we have to undertake in life, even in the spiritual life. There is one more dimension of this problem that we have inherited, uh, which I want to illustrate here. Uh, this is a story that I heard in one of the lectures, I believe by Shaun analogy. And it was about uh, the time when the mother used to go to play tennis in the ashram playground. And uh, her attendant uh, noted that every now and then, mother would point to a person and ask who he, who, who that person was. And the attendant noted that the mother asked mostly uh, about women. So it was not about men. She was able to recognize the men, but the women she was not able to recognize very much. So the attendant put this question to the mother why it was so and the mother explained that when she sees a person she doesn't only see the physical form but she also sees the subtle form or the sukshim sharir and she uh, when the sukshim sharir or the subtle body is not particularly well formed or individualized it is difficult for her to recognize that person and the individuality of the woman because of the way they were brought up in in the past few centuries Uh, The individuality was suppressed, and because of that, they were not very recognizable. But the mother said, "Because now I am here, this will change, and women will become as individualistic, as as strong individuals as men." And we see that after the mothers coming, there has been a whole movement among uh, among the female population in the world, and we see that uh, now the the women are more assertive and independent, and they are becoming individuals now you may ask why becoming an individual is important because in windows yoga like the mother mentioned there are three victories that have to be achieved first victory is to become the individual second victory is to surrender the individual to the divine and the third victory is to is for the divine to transform the individual so becoming offering and transformation. So these are the three victories that have to achieve. And women have certainly taken the first step towards that. So they are becoming individuals nowadays. And that was one of the works that the mother has done um, by her grace. Now, we can all agree that we have made progress in certain dimensions on um, these problems that we discussed, right? But clearly the problem is far from resolved. Men and women are still not able to work as complementary halves. And when I whenever I go to internet forums or I talk to people in general, I see that uh, there is a lot of enmity there between the fem- female side of things and the male side of things. Uh, for example, if I go to a feminist blog, I'll I'll see there will be a lot of hatred for the way that men treat women and the way they are not able to understand women. And similarly, on the menosphere blogs on on the red pill ideological blogs, that is there, I'll I'll see that men are. Blaming women for all the all all the shortcomings that they feel in the relationships. So, uh, like uh, Gitanjali mentioned, there are three slaveries that the mother mentioned, which actually attaches men and women together, uh, and because of which they are not able to free themselves from each other, even though they even even if they have that enmity between them. So I'll I'll just men- I'll just read the mother's words here. So the mother mentioned that woman is enslaved to man because of the attraction she feels for the male and his strength, because of the desire for a home and security things and lastly because of the attachment to motherhood man too on his side is enslaved to woman because of his possessiveness because of his desire for sexual relations and because of the attachment of the, to the little comforts and conveniences of married life so i believe these are the attachments that are binding both of them together and they are not able to meet as free beings or free souls to each other and it is very important for both of them to uh, get free of these slaveries now if what could be the way of um, seizing these slaveries or transforming our consciousness right so shibindo and the mother have always said that to change man's nature through external machinery or laws is not possible uh it will give an illusion of progress, but things will fall back again to the same moment because the nature has not changed. So we see that there has been certain progress made because of the laws that have been made by uh, the states in, in, in favor of women or in favor of men, uh, but still uh, the reconciliation has not been achieved. So they mentioned that it is only a radical change of consciousness that can solve the different crisis that humanity finds itself in. And even for this crisis, the, model, the mother the mother, proposed a very radical solution. So I'll, I'll just read her words from, for her essay, which is titled The Problem of Women. I think these are very, very um, instructive words for us. So I'll just read, it, read through it first. So the mother says, in their best moments, both men and women can forget their differences of sex but it reappears at the slightest provocation. The woman feels she is a woman. The man knows he is a man, and the peril is revived indefinitely in one form or another, open or veiled, and perhaps all the more bitter, the less it is admitted. And one wonders whether it will not be so until there are no longer any men or women, but living souls expressing their identical origin in sexless bodies. Living souls expressing their identical origin in sexless bodies. So this is the ideal that the mother has placed. And she further says, for one dreams of a world in which all these oppositions will at last disappear and where a being will be able to live and prosper, who will be the harmonious senses of all that is best in the human race, uniting conception and execution, vision and creation in one single consciousness and action. So she is asking for a new Gnostic or supramental being that can express both these dimensions of the divine in a single body, in a single being, and can uh, can be the integral being that we are looking forward to, right? So that is the solution, radical solution that the mother envisions. But because this solution may seem too far to our ignorant eyes, she gives, uh, another, she gives the way for the near future as well. And with these words, I'll end my discussion also. So the mother says, in any case, until the manifestation of a new conception and consciousness compels nature to create a new species, Uh, which would no longer have to yield to necessity of animal procreation, and thus be under the obligation of dividing into two complementary sexes. The best that can be done for the progress of the present human race is to treat both sexes on a footing of perfect equality, to give them the same education and training, and to teach them to find through a constant contact with the divine reality that is above all sexual differentiation, the source of all possibilities and harmless. And she expresses one wish that I would like to end it with. She says that and it may be that India, the land of contrasts, will also be the land of new realizations, even as she was the trader of their conception. So like she said, may uh, we as Indians, we may, be, may we be able to rise above our differences and become what she wants us to become. And may this new age that the mother has brought heal the differences that are there between the two genders. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mohiji,
0: for your wonderful explanation. Actually, it was very heartening to listen that you started from the from our text and from our philosophical principles, and actually stressed on the two ideas of the masculine and feminine, and then actually so beautifully explaining the stages, the cyclic stages of our society of our society and how that plays out in this particular concept particular dualities of feminine and masculine so yeah a brief question to you and then i'll move on to Gitanjali ji if she wants to add on that as well and meanwhile audience might pose their questions in the chat box as well we'll take it up so what we see today is that there are tendencies of conventional stages and by conventional stages, we mean that there is we are only stuck with the outer forms and the inner spirit or the inner truth has been lost. And these tendencies of conventional age is uh, visible. But at, at the same time, these tendencies of conventional age are visible in the forms, in the institutions of uh, rationalistic or individual age also. So to elaborate on this, for example, Uh, Gitanjali was also mentioning how there are only 2% of women CEOs in India today. So if we uh, look at uh, the corporate structure, it is basically, one can say it is a product of the rationalistic or individual age, where the um, sole focus of truth is on the human experience, uh, uh, the empirical experience of human and no other forms of truth are taken into account but we see that in that also there are forms of convince there are ideas of conventionalism and to further elaborate on this uh, let's see how it happens this uh, like uh, again going back to the same example the 2% of uh, women are ceos because this corporate structure is so designed that it rewards the mainly the uh, vile or extreme masculine traits So as you are mentioning the traits of feminine the harmony or the love the beauty or the liberation if one possesses those activities those uh, principles he or she cannot excel in the corporate institution that kind can be one reason why we see there is so uh, mismatch between men and women in a corporate or institutional setup so and to overcome to this, there are individual efforts. Individual women get into this and do that. But there is no systematic change. Your thoughts and way forward on this.
1: Right.
5: So if I may put some points forward on this. So what Kitanjali Ji mentioned about the CEO problem, right? So we have only 2% of the CEOs. I think she is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Kitanjali, she is saying that basically, women have to be given the opportunity, uh, she doesn't want it to be 50-50% women CEOs and male CEOs, she just wants to say that women should be given the opportunity to rise on the ladder and uh, basically express themselves in that way, in that particular form. But as you mentioned that currently the structures have been set up in such a way that uh, only the masculine elements are emphasized when uh, one wants to lead, uh, lead a country or lead a, basically lead uh, an organization. right? So that is certainly a problem, and I think it is only by the introduction of women in the organizations that that culture can be changed, right. So this culture of masculinity, uh, basically, if if you go to a company, right, so I I work in an organization. So if I want to increase my pay, I have to negotiate with, with my employer, right. And it is certainly observed that women are more on the agreeable side than men, and that is why we see one of the gender pay gaps that that is one of the prominent talking points of the feminist movement, right so this is certainly a difference in the natures that have to be observed and equality of outcome is not desirable i would say but equality of opportunity is desirable and if we want to have 50 50 percent i don't think that's a realistic goal, but we want to give that opportunity so that the culture can change maybe you can elaborate on this
0: yeah thank you yeah Gitaanji, your thoughts on this how to change this culture of the institutions so that it becomes so, that it gives space to the feminine principles.
4: Yeah. So, you were right uh, in observing that uh, when we talk about these uh, the cycles, you know, it's not that one is ending and the other is beginning. And it's not that if we are today on the eve of, you know, the subjective age, that uh, the symbolic does not exist nor, or the typal. So, it is layers, you know, and each one is there. But what is the predominant thing? So that is why, while uh, not being in favor of this, uh, so what the mother says is, there are these precursors. You know, there are these people who are, or uh, movements that are, that lead it, lead a certain change, okay? So uh, what we see today is that this 2% uh, which is there is actually, um, as also Mohit said, it's not just the structure alone, But it is also what the structure does to individual psychology. You know, when I said both men and women have to change, it is also women believe to begin that they cannot lead or, you know, they can only play supporting roles. So that is where education comes in. So we have the grassroots approach and we have to have a top down approach. So the bottom up approach is through education, through, you know, uh, empowerment, like at Himalayan Institute of Alternatives. We have so Mohit. I think I do agree. I I, I say that it should be fifty fifty. Huh? In Hayal, we have uh, the staff ratio of men and women is fifty fifty. It's a stated objective. Even when we intake students, it is fifty uh, percent of girls and uh, boys. Even if they are being taken for this ice tupa thing, which is like going in minus uh, twenty degrees, you know. Because I think women, as I told in my talk, also that women also have to believe that they are not it is not just because it is now digital age and they can sit in the office that they are coming into work. Even physically if it is required, it should they should become physically strong because the adhara needed for supramental manifestation, both for men and women, requires a physical that has to be strong. So it is so the so change is uh, slower and we have to show the way. But on a lighter note I must admit that of late you find more sports medal being won by women in India, and more fashion things being won by men. So that on a lighter note, but it also shows how this uh, and even uh, though um, this whole this this LGBTQ and other movements, you know, these are all a uh, stepping stone towards the subjective age, mind you, because individuality of going within and expressing uh, what one is and being accepted as equals it is a prerequisite for the subjective age and for the spiritual age so on one hand you have this grassroots level change that needs to be done on the other hand this policy change which allows it and uh, only then it can happen but it surely has begun you know the change um, that we see has begun and uh, Yes, it will soon catch uh, that uh, trend. Yeah. But I reiterate again, and this is for all the men in the audience and all. It cannot happen with only women empowerment, and you know, men have to learn to make their beds in the morning and to make their cook their food. This is the this is the big the baby steps towards this. You know, as a Mohit was mentioning, and I also mentioned in my talk, when, when mother says that this little creature comforts of family, what is that? It is this, you know, somebody is getting you tea or making your bed or, you know, making the house nice. These are this creature comforts. So, though women have, uh, I would say, taken larger steps towards this equality in terms of, I don't think they need protection anymore, or, you know, they are financially independent. And I, I don't think even this whole motherhood narrative is changing. lot of uh, women today um, it is not something that defines them anymore you know we will not go into the pros and cons of it but women have moved more than men have if you take the last hundred years towards this uh, becoming integral beings i'll just give you an example when I, i i was i set up an engineering company and i would go for these meetings and I would have reached there on time and the other side would keep waiting. And then I would say, shall we start the meeting? And they would say, no, we are waiting for your boss to come. And I would say, please carry on, I am the boss. You know, Because the assumption was if it is an engineering company, uh, the boss had, had to be a man. And believe me, in uh, that time, I was the only woman uh, entrepreneur who was into engineering in this country. But it is not important that I was the only one. The way collectivity works is that if once the stereotype has been broken then it it makes room for others so we need to nurture these uh, you know the stars or those who are challenging these stereotypes and you know going forward and that's how change will happen
0: yeah yeah thank you Avitangeli ji. and now if i would uh, request professor ramesh ji to throw his light on this particular question and uh, on the panel discussion as a whole
1: as well, it would be really nice.
2: Thank you, Abhishek. While the discussion was going on, particularly after both the speakers had spoken, uh, there seemed to be a focus on uh, one or two things which uh, I may add add to. One was, uh, on uh, the greater equality between men and women that has been achieved and more that still remains to be achieved. While I mean that is uh, desirable, equality does not necessarily mean identity. And, uh, and therefore, uh, what comes more naturally to men and women uh, is in keeping with their nature. I'm not talking only in terms of cooking food or uh, Uh, bringing up children. I mean, those are things which men and women should both be participating in. But uh, what I'm thinking of is uh, that, you know, uh, some of our language itself reflects those basic differences. Like we talk in terms of a mother's love. But when it comes to the men, we talk of the male ego. And ego and love are in a way antagonistic. Ego is a separative force and love is a uniting force. And uh, That quickly sort of takes us to another conclusion that if love is the basic requirement for spiritual growth, women are in fact more equipped for spiritual growth than men are. And uh, one sort of corollary from this, which is again obvious, is that uh, uh, not only we feel that uh, a boss has to be a man, but when a crime is committed, again, the police starts looking for men. That is also true. Why? Because 90% of the crimes are committed by men. and that is. Probably because uh, they are known for their ego, whereas the women for love and uh, the two are being antagonistic, women are unlikely to do the type of things that men may do, the wrong things that men may do. So, while that is also true. But then another fact, which was probably also brought out somewhere, was that in spite of this, why is it that uh, while the, you know, when you run a spiritual retreat or a yoga course, and this is something which everybody finds everywhere. most of the students are women, but the spiritual leaders and the teachers happen to be mostly men. That again is something which one has to think about if women are better equipped for it, then why is that does it happen? That possibly happens one reason at least could be, which Shirbindu has hinted on in I think the synthesis of yoga that uh, if uh, a certain degree of individuality and uh, freedom to deviate from the conventional type of life in which you are just expected to play the role of uh, getting married and having children and living a usual family life, that expectation is from both men and women. But if men want to deviate from it, that freedom has been available to them much more liberally than to women. So women have not been able to deviate from that. And that may be one reason why they may be growing spiritually through the role that they have played in the house and uh, in bringing up children because those are also opportunities for spiritual growth they might grow up phenomenally but they are not able to assume those leadership roles which give high visibility in the spiritual field so they're not able to do that and i find that i mean having had uh, uh, more than 200 students by now in the teaching yoga courses where you come to know students fairly intimately having seen that i've seen that uh, Women do have those restrictions far more than men do. that does happen for example, after doing the course, if the woman wants to do just voluntary work, then she's told that uh, why you don't want to uh, earn something, everybody is making money from yoga, or if she wants to continue on the path more seriously again, she's told that that is interfering with your duties at home and so on and so forth. so restrictions are far more i mean and subtle and uh, if they a uh, man is not at all in the, on that path, then it sometimes even leads to big sort of conflicts in the family, and uh, the woman feels that she is alone, nobody understands her, and uh, that type of uh, things can lead to quite a bit of inconvenience to women. So those differences are there. And also while the focus was on um, big things like um, women, uh, what is the percentage? In the CEOs, or one may say, what is the percentage of women in the army, and uh, so on, uh, the number of women and men uh, in the fashion industry, and so on. Now, while I mean those things uh, are there, but they touch only a small segment of the society. What probably touches a much larger segment to the society is the uh, are various types of suppression and oppression which women suffer across the board, irrespective of. Uh, which is, uh, strata they belong to, and uh, more in the lower strata, lower socioeconomic strata, but uh, across the board, uh, various types of oppression, gross and subtle. Gross, sometimes uh, in uh, imposing upon them uh, the type of dress that they would wear, which uh, is very inconvenient, uncomfortable, but uh, makes them cover up a, almost their whole body. One gross form of suppression, but in subtle forms, express it in many other ways, or domestic violence i mean those are the types of things which bring about bring out the degree of uh, uh, oppression of women which still continues uh, across the board and the difference across in the world is more in degree than in kind when it comes to that type of oppression so we still have a long way to go another thing that was brought out was uh, that why uh, i think uh, abhishek only raised that question that why in spite of having moved from the age of uh, uh, convention to the age of reason, uh, why is it that uh, the attitudes still tend to be conventional? And one answer, which I think Gitanjali gave was that uh, uh, you do not move completely from one age to the other, the carryover from the previous era continues and you are not fully into the new one yet. So that is, of course, perfectly true. But I think one thing which uh, has uh, created that type of a dichotomy, particularly in India, is the fact that um, when we, all these things happened more or less simultaneously. As we moved from life-affirming spirituality to life-negating spirituality, and from life-negating spirituality, with life-negating spirituality, we moved into the age of convention. And after came, as we moved into the age of convention, we were enslaved. All these things just kept reinforcing each other. And the result was that by the time we became free in 1947, we were deeply steeped into the era of convention. We were stuck in the age of convention, more or less. And secondly, something which could have helped that not happen and bring us out quickly was education. That had also suffered. Education suffered first when we moved from uh, the era of uh, uh, the Vedic age, the age of type of age to the age of convention, but it suffered much more after we were enslaved. I'm not going into the details, but uh, the fact is that by the time we were free, we were given the type of education which was preparing us for to be conventional. Uh, we might be have been educated in the English language, but the fact is that uh, our capacity to reason was not encouraged because the British basically trained us to be yes men in the bureaucracy. And that does not require, uh, that in fact, requires that the person not use his mind and be a conventional person. So that that is the type of education we received. And we have not been able to dismantle that completely yet. And the result is that even today, by and large, what we are producing through this system of education are people who may appear educated because they have high qualifications, but those qualifications equip them to make a living those qualifications are not equipping us to think rationally, to apply reason to life and to live a life of reason. And the one sort of concrete sort of fallout of this which is visible is that we may have a very large number of scientists, but when it comes to the scientific breakthroughs that the country is making, our contribution in relation to our population remains dismal. So, while I'm in We may have scientists because they have mscs and phd degrees but when it comes to the quality of our scientific output uh, it uh, is something not really something to boast about or write much home about and that is because we are not being trained to use our faculty of reasoning we are not being uh, taught how to think creatively how to uh, formulate good questions and so on so the higher faculties of learning which are required for uh, excelling in science and scientific research for generation of new knowledge those are not the faculties being encouraged and along with that are associated the social outcomes that is we may be highly educated in terms of the qualifications we have but the output but the outlook to life still continues to be conventional and uh, uh, that is uh, how we behave not only in the workplace but also in homes so the two go together because same person is for part of the day at home and part of the day outside, and the basic attitudes don't change. And at both places, it is the conventional attitude that continues to be the norm, irrespective of the degree of college education that a person has received. So these are some of the thoughts that were crossing my mind. It applies not only to the relationship between men and women, but also in other spheres, wherever we need to be more innovative, creative, and rational rather than conventional.
4: And uh, yep. thank you, uh, Rameshi. And I think Abhishek, if I may, want to add. See, there are these uh, certain uh, what we call the yuga dharma's. You know, the zeitgeist, the the spirit of the times. So there are this there is this complementarity. You know, this men and women, what they bring to the table. So in the individual and the reason uh, rational age. Maybe the mind was what I was trying to tell in my talk. Mind was the leader because we were recovering from the dark ages and we had to question everything. And so it is okay if, you know, men took the lead and women had to follow. But where we are going forward, we require two aspects to be developed. One is going deeper than the heart. You know, from the emotional heart to the deeper psychic. This is the evolutionary, you know, Yuga Dharma of the next maybe 200 years. One is this moving from the ego, individuality to the psychic. And the second is moving from the mind to the higher ranges of the mind. The higher mind and the intuitive mind. So what I was trying to tell in my talk was that both these movements Just as the mental development and you know, uh, uh, it comes naturally to the masculine way of being, this going deeper in the heart and intuitive abilities and higher than the mind, they come naturally to women. So, it is the responsibility of the women to take this uh, leap forward. It is the qualities which they have naturally in them which is necessary for the next stage of evolutionary growth. And it is to that end that women have to be raised to take this uh, work uh, forward.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, it's completely true with Anjali ji. And yeah, if Mohit ji wants to share something else, we would uh, move to end this session. Uh,
5: so I think I agree with all the panelists from Sheikh-ji. So. Um, Like the mother mentioned that it is only the spiritual solution that can solve this problem of the sexes and it is an individual journey for everyone, but as the new consciousness that the mother mentioned uh, that the mother uh, brought down into this world, the supramental consciousness, as it works, we will see a lot more maybe understanding of how uh, the sexes can relate to each other and maybe once the new species is in in in, we will find the permanent solution of this
0: problem yeah yeah and actually the words of the sri arubinda and the mother actually guides us and i am now thinking of one of the thing that the sri arubinda has mentioned in his essay india's culture and external influence that is the mandate of india is to work on the other ideas that come from outside and how we can make it more better and make it more stronger. And that should be our approach and how to actually fortify this movement of feminism. And, and this can only happen if there is only self-expression of one swadharma and as you have mentioned, like uh, creation of a new being, but that only time will tell. So now uh, I think we have we are at the end of the time as well for this webinar. And I would like to thank Mohik Ji for actually enlightening and setting his thoughts. Also thankful to Gitanjali Ji for taking time out of of our busy schedule and actually so patiently answering all our questions and many things. And also to Ramesh Ji to deliver the keynote address and actually coming and throwing lights on our discussion as well. I'd also like to thank Sampadaranda Misraji for actually organizing this and giving us a beautiful platform and a beautiful con- concept to actually contextualize Sri Aurobindo and the mother. Uh, we would like to now end of, end this webinar with one minute of silence, and then we can
1: all, yeah we can start now. Thank you everyone. We submit meet again on
0: the next month and we'll take up another topic and we'll try to brainstorm and th- see on that. Thank you everyone.
4: Thanks Ramesh. Nice to be here. Thanks Abhishek. Thanks yeah. Rashtram team, Tampad. And Shailendra Ji, I see he is here. If he wants to add something, Abhishek, would you want him? Shailendra yes. yes, yes.
3: Uh, what I was trying to comment in the chat box was we are trying to see those parameters on which we are trying to find the equality like you know women in the offices or women in defense or women at the ceo post i think these parameters are not uh, the correct way of you know seeing whether women are equal or not uh, uh, Gitanjali, if i could, if i had understood you uh, you know you are coming from an engineering background i also run a engineering company here and we do hire women and we give them preference also but the uh, attrition rate is very very high as compared to men then we started looking at uh, uh, inwards like are we not giving them a good uh, environment or uh, what is the reason why they are leaving but the reasons were many uh, let me tell you right now on my floor we have you know three women out of 10 male men uh, to- total team of 10. And uh, everything is world class means we have good toilets, we have good good food arrangements, we have got uh, company buses to ply between their homes and uh, office, but still, but still, you know, on one small pretext or the other, they leave, like their family issues, or there are some uh, marriages or deliveries or maternity and like that. So I think we should not, I'm happy that even at least three, or three are there, but just to make it five and five, I think that will be a big challenge even for the industry to do that. And let us not see that equality in terms of numbers at in offices or uh, or other places only mean that they are equal. That was my point.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: Sarandaji, I think we actually discussed on this, on the nature of the institutions and the uh, uh, self expression of the Swadharma. And we actually stressed equality from that point only and not just on the outer forms. And I don't think anybody who is aligned to Sri Aurobindo and the mother's thought would stick to the outer forms because they only. Uh, emphasize on the true spirit and how that can be ex- more better expressed. And that was the thing that all our analysts and uh, uh, and Rameshjeev has explained. I think that the uh, examples that are taken like the C percentage of CEOs, those are just examples and how can we make it better and I don't think uh, our intention
1: was that.
4: and also uh, whether uh, people who are working in your uh, company uh, I mean uh, with all uh, due respect to your intent but is that their swadharma or are they pushed into it uh, by the for their livelihoods you know is it their self-determination so these are all very deeper questions you know that is why I said that it is a lot of serious uh, reflection and as a women in the corporate sector who has gone through it I know that the world is not a fair uh, level playing field uh, you know Uh, one has to uh, work uh, maybe twice if both on a perception level and also on the ground uh, if one has to do and therefore I said that both sides need to grow Women need to believe in themselves. Men need to uh, create an ecosystem, also. So, uh, because the divine shakti is not an uh, abstract thing, you know, mother is not something. Uh, she is not abstract. She's right here. And in, in the mother, Sherbindu clearly says that unless these four powers of the mother are perfected in each of us, there is no chance that supramental energies can flow on this earth, you know, freely. So it is from that angle that uh, the equality of is and numbers are only a reflection of psychological, uh, you know, collective, uh, you know, things that go on. If it mm. were uh, thirty seventy, is still okay, but two two ninety-eight is I, I would consider it abnormal. And um, there is something to be looked at it individually and systemically.
0: Thank you, Kitanjali And I think Sri Aurobindo has mentioned that man is a transitional being, and those things that we are discussing, they can be only solved with time and with deeper reflex, reflections and with a higher purpose in our mind. Now, again, thanks to everyone and those who have joined us in the Zoom session and those who are also viewing it on we are viewing it online in on
1: the YouTube. We would now take leave of everyone, Namaste all.